This is Can I Laugh on Your Shoulder? Hey, welcome to Can I Laugh on Your Shoulder? I'm Molly Stillman, and this is a podcast where I get to sit down with a different guest each week and have raw, funny, often brutally honest conversations about the things that matter most faith, business, life, and everything in between, where we each learn how to be good stewards of the things we've been entrusted with, even our stories, and how we can use those things to serve others and leave our families, our friendships, and our communities a little better than we found them. I want to create a space where people are unafraid to be themselves and unafraid to ask the questions the rest of us are thinking. My goal is to make you laugh, cry, and laugh till you cry. My guest this week is Jay Kim. He serves as lead pastor at Westgate Church in the Silicon Valley of California and a teacher in residence at Vintage Faith Church in Santa Cruz, California. He has been a writer for many years and has written a few books, including Analog Church and Analog Christian. He's written for Christianity Today, The Gospel Coalition. He's the co-host of Barna's Making Space podcast and Western Seminary's Regeneration podcast. And he is the new author of the 40 Days in Colossians Bible Study. Jay is incredibly wise. And as somebody who personally, I love studying scripture. I love Bible study, but I know that it's not for everybody. Let me tell you that the way that Jay talks is just, he brings things to life. He makes so many things just more clear. I loved talking with Jay. I could have talked with him about his study and his work probably all day. I really, really enjoyed this conversation. And I know that in particular, this episode is really going to minister to a lot of people. We talk a lot about the background and culture of the book of Colossians and how that intersects with our culture today. This interview was done over a month ago and is just as relevant right now, um, even more so. He talks a lot about how these key passages in the book of Colossians apply directly to our lives right now. And so many just amazing, amazing nuggets. You're going to learn a lot. You're going to laugh. You're going to cry. You're going to laugh till you cry. I hope you love this conversation. So on to my chat with Jay Kim. Jay, welcome to the show. I'm so excited to have you. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks, Molly. I'm glad to be on with you. And you are based in California, right? California, yeah, Silicon Valley, so like 45 minutes south of San Francisco. Nice, um, where every San, pastor San lives. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. It's, um, uh, yeah. Love it. Have you, are, are you like lifelong native Californian or? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, not just Californian, but Silicon Valley, San Jose. Wow. The greater Bay Area here. Yeah, I've been here. I wasn't born here. I was born in Korea, but I moved here when I was like four or five. So it's all I remember. But yeah, yeah I'm a native, which is pretty rare here. It's a really transient. I mean, that's what I was going to say. I was like, I know people that have either lived in Silicon Valley at some point or moved out of Silicon Valley at yeah. some point. It's not it's not a place that you usually meet somebody and they go, oh, yeah, I'm from Silicon Valley. It's just not. A, yeah. So that's awesome. It's rare. Yeah. Yeah. I but, love it. But it's home and I love it. Yeah. Cool. OK, well, let's uh, give us the J 101. So who you are, what you do and 
how you got to where you are today. We know that a lot of it has been spent in Silicon Valley. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, all of it really. Um, gosh, yeah, it's not a very thrilling story, but I'm uh, first and foremost, I'm a I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Jesus, um, and it's a really great joy for me because my day job is is that is talking about uh, Jesus to people in our church and in our city. So I'm a pastor here in Silicon Valley. I serve at a church called Westgate. Um, I'm married to Jenny, my best friend. We've been married for, for we'll celebrate 15 years in January. Woo! And uh, yeah, two, two young kids, eight and five years old. So they're kind of in the throes of elementary school and kindergarten and all of that. So they keep us really busy. Yeah, I, I write a little bit and create content um, when when time permits. So life is uh, it's busy, it's a blur, but it's a joy. Yeah, I wake up most days and just am sort of overwhelmed with gratitude at the at the gift that is my life and some of the things I get to do. So there you go. That's the one on one. I love it. I also am in the throes of elementary school. My kids are 10 and uh, 10 and seven and yeah. or my son would be very upset to say or that I've said just said seven. He's seven and a half. You know, the half is <laughs> that's right. Key. Very important. Very yeah. important. But yeah, so I totally uh, like you're you're a little bit in the weeds. Like we're a little yeah. we're a little in the weeds. We're in it together, Jay, of, of <laughs> elementary school. But um, yes. but yeah, I, I totally agree. Like it's just there are days where it's you're all, you're in the weeds, but then you're also like, I really love these weeds and I would not change uh, these yeah. weeds for. Yeah. A it's a wonderful season of life. I mean, they're the kids are still sweet. They still want to hang out with you. Yeah. You know, that's not going to last forever. So yeah, it's fun. I know my, my seven-year-old son is, he's my snuggler. Like he, God <laughs> knew that I needed a snuggle kid where my daughter, who's amazing, <laughs> was just never a snuggler. Like that was never yeah. her thing. And like, just never, once she could start crawling, she was like, I'm out. Don't touch yeah, me. Yeah. Like physical, <laughs> physical touch, not her love language. Meanwhile, my yeah, son yeah. is like, still at seven and a half like mommy will you snuggle me and then like he's yeah. still like sneaks in my bed like me and my husband and we're like you're seven and a half get out of here <laughs> but then there's yeah, like totally. the mommy part of me that's like okay come here snuggle me buddy um right anyway uh okay so obviously we know kind of the highlights um but i am really interested to hear your story of, I mean, one, I think there's a couple of really interesting pieces there. One, you were born in Korea. You came here uh, when you were four, lived in Silicon Valley your whole life, and you're a pastor. So how do those two things intersect in that? Were you always following the Lord? Did you come to know the Lord mm. at a later age? And um, so kind of what's your testimony in, in many ways? And then yeah. what led you uh, into a call to ministry? Yeah. Great question. I grew up going to church. I grew up in some people might be familiar with sort of the 90s evangelical youth ministry subculture, Yeah, um, listening to like, you know, DC talk on the weekends and mm -hmm. Nirvana Monday to Friday sort of thing. <laughs> and um, so I grew up going to church, was very involved in, you know, youth group and all of that. And really assumed because I went to church so much, really sort of growing up, grew up assuming that I was a Christian, you know, and a really sort of devoted follower of Jesus or something. But sadly, I went through what is so common these days, sadly common is the sort of deconstruction of faith. Um, not that deconstruction is a sad thing. I think in many ways it can be a, a wonderful gift. 
to you know bring our our skepticism and our doubts to God and to community. That that's actually a healthy thing in many ways. But uh, long story short, yeah, when I went to college uh, my freshman year. I um sort of because I was removed from the the structure, the organized structure and the the social sort of com- belonging that I experienced in youth group, that was all gone. I realized in college very quickly, oh, I wasn't really a committed follower of Jesus. I was a committed member of a youth group, you know. Ooh. Not that the youth group was bad, the youth group was great, but my experience of it was uh, much more social than it was spiritual um, or or formational. So yeah, my faith kind of came crumbling down in college. So I spent probably three years, the first three years of college, I think I would have probably categorized myself at that time as an agnostic. Mm. I think I still had a sense that there was something out there that, you know, I, I still believed in the possibility of the divine, but this whole Jesus thing and and the Bible and all of that, I just thought, man, that's all nonsense, you know? And mm. so anyways, long story short, um, my senior year of college, my fourth year of, of college, there was a, a group of guys um, several years older than me, probably about five or six years older than me. They were all post-college, uh, young professionals sort of in their late 20s. They were a part of the church where I had grown up. In fact, one of them had been my small group leader when I was mm. growing up. And even though I had kind of walked away from my faith and from the church uh, and from God, these guys always just kind of relationally stayed connected with me. Mm-hmm. They made it really clear that um, regardless of my belief or lack of belief, they loved me, they cared, and wanted the best for me. So long story short, my fourth year of college, they had this little sort of Monday night thing going on. Three of these guys had this Monday night hangout. It was very casual. They'd get together, eat dinner and, you know, play video games and just talk. And they started inviting me to that, even though I was several years younger than them. They were like, hey, come out Monday night. Just hang out with us. We just want to, you know, we miss you. Want to spend right. time with you. And because they had shown me so much love and consistency over the years, even though I had sort of walked away from the church and from faith, um, I was like, yeah, I, I like these guys and, you know, want to spend time with them. I looked up to them in many ways. So uh, I started going out Monday nights and I'm, gosh, I'm probably like 21 uh, at this point. And then those Monday night hangouts really were the catalyst for me making the long, slow journey back to faith. So I, mm. I, in, I encountered, you know, the reality of Jesus and God's love for me in a real meaningful, personal way within the context of that community on Monday nights. And, um, and then, you know, the second part of the question, what, what, how did I go from that to becoming a pastor? So these guys, all of them, all three of them, uh, you know, full-time jobs and busy and all of that, but they would also, um, volunteer their time and they were youth group leaders. So they were small group leaders in the youth ministry where I grew up. And over time, because I had, again, encountered Jesus in a really meaningful, powerful way in this Monday night group, these guys were like, man, we, we think you'd be an awesome small group leader. And I was like, man, I don't, I don't know that I've got really anything to give to students, but because they believed in me so much, I just said yes. And I started, I started doing what they were doing, which I started leading a, a seventh grade Bible study at the church. And, and and I quickly realized what these seventh grade boys didn't need from me were answers. What they needed was 
compassion and and someone to listen and consistent presence and relationship and a safe space to bring their questions and so i just thought well that i can do and and that totally changed my life hmm. I, I led this small group of boys for two or three uh about two years um from seventh grade all the way until they got into their freshman year of high school. And yeah, it just utterly changed my life. And that's really what sparked in me this desire to spend more time doing that, you know, pouring into people, building relationships, digging into the Bible together, um, and allowing God by his spirit to form and, and transform us into his people. So so that led to Bible college and seminary. Yeah. And then I became a youth pastor and here we are 20 years later. Wow. I actually, I love that story because I think it's a story that a lot of people can relate to, whether they grew up in church or whether they didn't. Um, mm. Because I, I think, I mean, again, this is a, I mean, this is a, a generalization, but I would say that most people, especially in that college years, I know that was the case for me. Yeah. You just go through this period of uh, transformation, this um, this inner wrestling, this inner struggle with, uh, I kind of call that period like my almost quarter life crisis, like where you're just questioning everything. Like, why was mm. I created? Why mm. am I here? It's just this yeah. search for deeper meaning. And for a lot of people, and you know, they will go, they will get to that phase and for those that have walked, you know, grown up in the church, many people do walk away for a period. Um, yeah. And uh, I mean, certainly that's not everyone's story. Um, it wasn't my husband's story, but um, a lot of people do walk away for that from, you know, for a period. Um, but I always love hearing how people came back. For yeah. me, I didn't grow up in the church, but I had been friends with Christians, but you know, it just, anyway, it's a long story, but essentially like, through a wide range wide range of events, eventually got to a point in college where I was just like, I don't want anything to do with this Jesus guy. Like, I don't want mm. anything to do with this church. I don't want anything to do with any of it. Yeah. And so I had turned it off completely. And then I didn't end up getting saved till I was 25. So mm. I think, but again, it's, and it was because of, you know, pe the people that were placed in my life that yeah. eventually really God used people to bring me you know, to him, but, but yeah. I, so, but I love your story of how it just, you were on this kind of ebb and flow, um, mm -hmm. that eventually led your way back to faith. And then, and then yeah. what led you to a call to ministry. And this is just so fascinating to me because you mentioned about how you had been doing this Bible study with these, these kids and how just creating that safe space for them to ask their hard questions, how in so many ways that, deepened your faith as well. Mm. And I've been having this, this conversation, I feel like over and over again, over the last um, couple of months, just with whether it's people on the podcast or, you know, people in my own life of how important yeah. that is to create that safe space for wrestling and questions and all yeah. those kinds of things. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. We share, we share a lot of that in common. And like you said, I think, I think it, it is common. So, you know, maybe, maybe there, there are, are some people listening and was like, Oh my gosh, that's me. Like I've been that season of yeah. deconstruction or whatever 
Yeah. And there's, you know, I think that part of the journey is, is a critically important part of the journey, but, you know, um, I think the through line in your story and my story and in most people's stories for those who find, you know, light at the end of whatever dark tunnel they're going through, it's almost always tied, you know, intricately tied to a community of people, you know, it's, it's never in isolation. It's never alone. And, And the reason that's important is like, I think, when we're in those valley seasons of life or those long dark tunnels and where's the light, I think there is such an allure for a variety of reasons to stay isolated, mm. you know, and to stay alone and to believe the the lie of isolationism, which is nobody else understands. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes that can devolve into a really dangerous version of exceptionalism, like only I can figure my way out of oh. this, you know. And, <laughs> I was guilty uh, of that. Yeah. So yeah, I, I would just encourage anybody listening, like, man, finding some people who love you and uh care about you and are willing to sort of lean into whatever you're going through. It's just, you know, it's a lifeline. Yeah. Well, obviously that kind of fast forwards us uh, a couple of decades to where you are now. And you mentioned at the beginning, you do some writing and things like that. And um, you've uh, written a couple books, uh, Analog Church, Analog Christian, which man, I have, I would love to talk to you about that stuff. Um, <laughs> but uh, one of the reasons you're here is because you have come up with a 40 day or co- come up with a, that's not the right word. You have come out with a uh, 40 day yeah. study in the book of Colossians. And I want to just say this right off the bat. Like if somebody is listening and is like snooze boring, I don't want (laughs) to sit and listen to a conversation about some people digging into the book of Colossians, sit tight, (laughs) hold on. Because like I told Jay before we even started recording, I said, I love talking about this stuff. And it's one of my greatest joys in the entire world is to help people. And I know that this is one of your passions, and that's uh, why you wrote a Bible study, um, is bringing the Bible to life for people, helping them understand it, helping them um, really realize like how a book that was written 2000 years ago is still as relevant today as it was then. Um, So to kind of start... One, I just have to ask, like, why Colossians? So of all the 66 books of the Bible (laughs) written by 40 (laughs) inspired human authors, why Colossians? What was it about Colossians that drew you in that said, yes, this is the book that I really want to unpack? Yeah. Yeah. It's a great question. It's it's hard to get at it when you just read it. Like if someone is at home right now um, and they open their Bible app or grab a Bible somewhere and uh, you were to open Colossians and just start reading it because the writer, a guy named Paul is writing within the context of his day. He's not giving you all sorts of historical details. He's writing to people who literally live in the city of Colossae. And so he's not saying like, hey, you guys, you know, your city, which is like this. He doesn't have to say that they live in it. (laughs) But when you dig in just a little bit and read some commentaries or you just like Google it, you know, first century Colossae, the city that Paul is writing to on a number of levels is so incredibly uncannily reflective of some cultural realities we are facing today Mm. that for me, as I read Paul's words in his letter to the Colossians, 
And some of the things he says, which actually comes across as really confrontational, what I what I came to realize is, you know what? It feels confrontational because it it, it actually is confrontational to some of um, the cultural ethos of our day in the mm. 21st century here in the modern Western world. And the reason it feels that way is because he was confronting, in some ways, very similar things. 2000 years ago right. in this ancient city of Colossae. So what I mean by that as one um, significant sort of reality, Colossae, very much like today, the modern Western world you and I live in, Colossae was, um, it was a very um, syncretistic culture. And that's a big fancy word basically to mean syncretism is the fusion of beliefs and practices right um from a diverse range of traditions be it be it religious or or social or cultural or ethnic traditions and syncretism isn't b- bad in and of itself but where it gets really really tricky is when it gets pushed to the extreme when there is a sort of drawing in of like oh a little bit of this and a little bit of that and sprinkle in a little of this and a little bit of that what it can do is it can devolve into um a, a sort of cultural moment when the concept of truth like literally anything being unequivocally true right. uh becomes one, it, it becomes insignificant at first, but then eventually it becomes offensive. Mm. And you just think about the cultural moment we're living in today. We live in, you know, the Oxford Dictionary is like, you know, one of the most significant and well-respected dictionaries in the world. They put out a word of the year every mm-hmm. single year. They choose a word that they believe um, sort of encapsulates the cultural moment that year. And this was probably about seven years ago, maybe eight years ago, late 2010s, uh, mid to late 2010s, I think like maybe 2017 or something like that. The Oxford Dictionary's word of the year was post-truth, meaning after truth. And that whole concept of post-truth is that we now live in a world where truth has been redefined. Now, I'm not saying this is good or bad necessarily. I am simply saying that's the world we live in. And it is offensive to say that anything is unequivocally, um, unanimously, undeniably true. Hmm. And that's the world Paul is writing to. Yeah. Total syncretism, like you know, they wouldn't have used this phrase, but people, we use this phrase today, the the whole idea of my truth, you Mm -hmm. know, my truth is my truth and your truth is your truth. And in some ways, like I understand what people are saying. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, You know, there is a deep value and we need to offer um, empathy and respect toward people's unique experiences. That's really important. But um, if we're talking about truth, just by definition, if something is literally actually true, it can't just be true for one person or or some people. It is just true, right? And uh, and that we we've lost some of that. And so that was the case two thousand years ago in this ancient city called Colossae. And Paul writes to speak into that for followers of yeah. Jesus. So for me, that's a long roundabout way of saying that that's why I, that's why I worked on this study. I just felt like reading these words from Paul. Oh my gosh, he could be writing this letter today. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, uh, I mean, I will, I will be honest. Like I, 
the first time, like when I was a, a baby Christian, I remember um, the church I was I was attending at the time did a series on Colossians, and I remember mm. as this kind of baby Christian. Um, I remember our pastor even said something at the time, like, I mean, this is probably uh, 12 years ago, something like that, where he said, this is a meaty text. It can be confusing. It can be hard to interpret. And so like his, he was like, my whole goal is we're just going to take the next four weeks and we're just going to really try and simplify it and break it down for you. And, um, yeah. and after I went through that, and then that was kind of the beginning of this journey for me for really falling in love with studying the word. Mm. Um, yeah. I just love it. And I mean, I, I've always liked to learn. I've always, you know, but I think for me, one of the reasons I loved, I fell in love with Bible study and really digging into the text. And, um, you know, uh, I remember my, my, my friend laughed at me when I was so excited when I had ordered my very first, uh, my Strong's exhaustive concordance of the Bible. And I was like, I was like, you don't understand. This is the coolest thing ever. She's like, no yeah. one is excited about a concordance. And I was like, I am. Okay. My yeah. husband laughed at me. He thought I was like, I got my roses, Bible maps, charts, and timelines. And uh, I love it anyway. But that's, that's but awesome. a lot of it I can trace back to that sermon series where I mm. really began to just scratch the surface of of this of this book and that was you yeah. know, 12 years ago in any event in the last couple of months i've the book of colossians just like keeps coming up and i think mm. that that the reason being is a lot of what you said it's just mm. it is there's something really unique about it in its approach to how paul was writing to yeah. these people and how they had a lot of questions just like we have questions and they were struggling with things similar to what we we struggle with just in a different cultural context. But there's, yep. you know, I think it really speaks to the whole I- idea of, uh, you know, there's nothing new under the sun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so, um, so you, you set out to write this study. Can you break down what was your approach in this study and how you really wanted to, um, or I guess I should say, once you decided, all right, this is really the thing that I want to want people to 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 do, um, or to mm-hmm. to dig into. What was your approach as far as what you wanted people to glean from this? In that helping people to understand, you know, key passages that apply to their lives, yeah. or how, um, you know, like you said, the background and culture uh, intersect with our culture today, or just like why it matters to, uh, pursue godly wisdom, all those kinds of things that, um, what was your approach in that? Yeah. I mean, I I do in in a much more expansive way early on, uh, a bit of what we just talked about, you know, set the scene. It's fascinating. I mean, even if you're not into history, it's just fascinating to think that two millennia ago, uh, they people were wrestling with very similar questions and very similar tensions and temptations. So, um, really early on in the study, that that's that's a bit of it. It's not a lot of it, but it's a bit of it. That you know the history and the context and the culture of this place, Colossae, primarily to set the tone and and help all of us realize. Oh, like you said, there's nothing new under the sun. Mm-hmm. The tension we feel, the questions we have, the sort of feeling of the rug being pulled out from underneath us when it comes to stable foundations that we can stand on in terms of 
hey, this is reality and this is not reality, that that sort of strange milieu of um, what is true, nothing is true, misinformation and disinformation, like all of that stuff happening right now in our culture, as you scroll Twitter or watch the news or whatever, I think most of us, maybe if, if not most of us, many of us, but I think most of us, feel that tension. It's like, I don't know who to believe. I don't know what's true. I don't like, is it CNN or Fox News or what? Like all of that stuff that we feel, they felt. I mean, they were in, in in fact, there's a whole thing Paul does where he's addressing what what academics and scholars call the Colossian heresy. And he doesn't even lay out what the heresy was. So there are all sorts of um, guesses and hypotheses about what specifically that might have been. But that's even beside the point. The point is, Paul is basically saying, if he were to write this letter today, he'd be like, listen, I get it. There's like misinformation abounds. We live in a post-truth world. You don't know who to believe or what to believe. I get it. But here is the stable ground upon which you can stand. And on one level, it is offensive because that stable ground is Jesus is the son of God and all things orbit around him. He's the king of the universe. Well, that's really offensive. Like it was offensive back then. When culturally speaking, in the Roman Empire, Colossae was, um, you know, a province in the Roman Empire, uh, there was only one king, and that was the Caesar, right? The emperor of Rome. So that's an offensive thing to say. And today, in our cultural moment, I would say, most people would not verbalize it this way, but I would say, today, we live in the most autonomous, individualistic culture uh, in the history of human beings. That's not me positing an idea or hypothesis. It's like most social historians agree on that, that in the modern Western world, um, no generation of humans has ever been as autonomous and individualistic as we are. That's not necessarily all bad. It's just reality. Uh, so it is quite offensive to say, listen, guess what? You are not the center of the universe. <laughs> it's not actually all about you. That's really offensive as it was back then. So for me, I think that's everything in the study flows out of that. I'm not interested in sort of like, hey, let's just exegete Greek words and like, oh, isn't that interesting? This word means that. There is a lot of that in the study, but it's all born out of a desire to help us, one, see the parallels between the ancient Colossian struggle and our struggle today, and then to find real meaning and hope um, that is timeless and universal uh, in the words of Paul as he as he points us to Jesus, um, who is the king of the world and and the, the great sun around which all other things orbit. Yeah. Oh, man. I love how you uh, just so poignantly really just break that down for us. I'm always interested to know this, and especially you as somebody who's a pastor and, you know, you've, this is not, this was not a new text for you. Um, as you were digging into this and writing this study, I would just love to know if there was one or two things that it had just never occurred to you. Like you mm. came across something, you were like, wow, that like, I mean, it was just a personal revelation. You're like, this is fascinating. I find this really interesting. I had never known this before because um, I love when the word does that for me, especially if it's a text that you've been in a lot. Um, yeah. I just be, would be curious if there's uh, at least one example or a couple examples of something like that for you. 
Yeah. Oh gosh. There's so much, so, so much. It's hard to, it's hard to sort of narrow it down to one, but um, yeah, I mean, a, a couple of thoughts come to mind. Well, I'll just, I'll, I'll just share one. Yeah. Um, you know, Colossians three, the very beginning of chapter three, Paul uh, writes, since then you've been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things above and not on earthly things. And, you know, set your hearts on things above, set your minds on things above. Typically we think about like today, you and I, as modern Western people, we think about heart and mind and we think, oh, he's talking about feelings and thoughts, you know, Mm -hmm. and he's not, (laughs) I mean, he is, but not the way we think of. So in the ancient world, um, Paul and his contemporaries had no conception of the human brain. Like they didn't, you know, like surgery in that way didn't exist. They didn't know that there was this big giant squishy you know muscle up here through which all of our ideas and and our senses were filtered so they didn't have this distinction that the heart was like where you feel things and the mind is where you think things their distinction was actually um it was very much connected so they considered the heart not just a, the seed of your emotions but the seed of your um intentions your motivations your desires mm. Um, and then they thought about the mind in some ways similar to the way we think about the mind, but different in the fact that, yes, they thought about the mind as the place where our ideas and our thoughts resided, but it was deeply connected. So the belief was the heart is where your motivations, your intentions begin, and they make their way up to your mind so that you can think through process in a logical way what those motivations should become, and then it, with your body, live out and embody those motivations. This is why Jesus says, you know, he um, quotes the Shema. He's asked in the Gospels, like, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all of your heart with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. So what he means is with your intentions and your motivations, point them to God in love, mm. and then think about what that actually means in your life. And then strength, like literally do something with your body Wow, that begins with your motivations, you process in your mind, and then actually do something, participate physically. And soul is kind of like the big wraparound. It's everything. It's the integrated human being. So- Here, Paul, when he says, set your hearts on things above and then set your minds on things above, what he's essentially saying is not like feel good feelings toward God. What he's saying is your motivation, your desires, your intention, point them to God and the things of God, and then think about what that means for your life. Hmm. Like that's that's the life of centering or reorienting yourself around Jesus, um, and that's hard to do, you that know, is, that's hard to yeah. do, but, um, but that was real, that was one idea. And it's actually an idea that, that sort of weaves itself throughout Paul's letter to Colossians. Yeah. Um, so that was a profound on, on a personal level, just as a sort of, you know, conviction and a challenge for me that I struggled to do that often. I, I usually will think about it as like, Oh, love God with my heart. It's like, Oh, I sing the song and I feel warm feelings toward God or love him with my mind. It's like, Oh, I'm just going to, I'll think about God throughout the day. But they're actually connected. It's our motivations, desires, intentions, 
and then moving to, okay, what does that actually mean for my life? And then embodying that reality in my actions. Mm. Well, I love the way that you just broke that down. And it's some, somebody said something to me one time when I was kind of joking about my love of studying the word. And, um, because I'm a, I'm a big feeler. I'm an Enneagram too. Like I'm big into feelings. Like I like feelings. Okay. I like to help people. I mean, I'm a crier. I'm not, I'm not like, you know, anyway. Um, but like, I love worship. And so, um, you know, I, being on the worship team is a, a big part and that's like how in a lot of ways, like I express my love of God. And, um, and yeah, I used to joke that I was a bit of a nerd when I, you know, got my concordance and I really liked to, to read commentaries mm. and like, why, why is that interesting to me where a lot of people like would fall asleep immediately? And somebody said, <laughs> well, that is, which this all connects and makes sense is, somebody had said to me, well, that for you is how you love God with your mind. And I had just, it had never occurred to me. She's like, what you're doing is like, you are in action, loving God with your mind by literally filling your mind with the things of God and wanting to know him deeper. And, and I, it just, but hearing how you explained that of just like your intentions and your thoughts, but then actually putting those things into action. And that was one thing for me. So you just, you just had helped me kind of connect some dots. So I think that's really, <laughs> really, really fascinating. Um, and, mm. and I think makes so much sense too, with when you really, like you said, understand the cultural context of the day where, yeah, you know, they, they just didn't have quite the concept that, that we do today just because we have different medical advancements. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's absolutely. so fascinating. Okay. Well, the other thing I wanted to ask kind of, which I think piggybacks off of this is, you know, there's obviously there's so many takeaways um, from this book and so many different things that, that people can, can glean from it. And, um, I know obviously the book of Colossians focuses a lot on Christian living and wisdom. And, um, and, uh, I think you had even put it as like this idea of what do we take off and what do we mm-hmm. put on? <laughs> um, yeah. so for what were some of your, again, and, and the reason I ask these questions, because I'm always fascinated, I, I realize it's going to be different for everybody, but I'm always fascinated to know when people are the ones that are actually doing the text and doing the, like, what are the things that you took away from this that, you know, are you begin to implement in your own life or really practical things of, because that concept of, okay, well, uh, setting my, my heart on things above and setting my mind on things above. And now I understand what the, he's actually referring to. How do I do that? Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned it about, um, you know, Paul's words about taking off and putting on, it's also from the third chapter, you know, he talks about us being God's chosen people. Um, and that's a statement of love, you mm-hmm. know, it's not a statement of elitism. That's a whole other conversation. Um, like who is the elect and <laughs> all of those conversations yeah. in the, sort of the neo reformed camp, which I, I have nothing against. It's a fascinating conversation, but I, I think primarily, you know, being chosen by God is a statement of love that God mm-hmm. loves us and, and chooses us because love has to be a choice. You know, if it's not, if it's forced, then it's something, but it's not love. Um, but yeah, it talks about, you know, we are God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. Yeah. So as a response to that, 
Paul says, now clothe yourselves, like put on, you know, things like compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. These are all ideas he repeats throughout his letters. Yeah. Most famously, he talks about them in Galatians 5. That's yeah, the famous sort of fruit of the spirit passage, right? Like the fruit of the spirit. If the spirit of God is in you, that will bear in you this sort of fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and on and on. So yeah, here in Colossians, he says, okay, here's the thing. God loves you. He's chosen you because he loves you and he wants you. He wants relationship. And typically, culturally speaking, we stop there. It's like, ah, oh, yes, I can rest. You know, I can rest in God's love. And we take advantage of it, not just in our relationship with God, but like we take advantage of it often in just our relationships, period. Yeah. You know, and yeah. um, so-and-so is always, they love me, they're for me. So, oh, great. I don't have to. Now, there's a healthy version of that. It was like, I don't have to put on a mask. I don't have to put on a, a front. I don't have to perform to earn someone's approval or love. They love me regardless. That is a very healthy, beautiful, wonderful thing. But on the other side of that spectrum is a real danger mm. in that we can begin to believe, oh my gosh, you know, mom and dad, they're going to love me no matter what. So I'll do whatever I want. Mm. You know what I mean? No yeah. matter No matter what becomes whatever I want. And think about that exchange. When someone loves you no matter what, what, what are they doing? They're essentially committing to you regardless of um, what others say about you, Yeah. regardless of your performance or lack thereof. They are committing their all to you and they are risking their all. And then as a response, if what we say is, okay, so because you're going to love me no matter what, even though you are fully giving yourself to me at great cost, at the risk of disappointment and on and on. So what I'm going to do is whatever I want. That is essentially to take the gift that the, the other party is giving you. I am all in with you. I am risking it all to be all in with you. You're taking that gift and you're treating it as something cheap. I was like, oh, you're going to love me no matter, no matter what, then I'm going to do whatever I want. I'm going to take that gift and use it as a sort of safety mechanism to give nothing back to you, but to simply waste the gift by living however I want. Um, mm. the, the German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer, 20th century theologian Bonhoeffer, he famously writes about in his book, Discipleship, or The Cost of Discipleship, he famously writes about the different the difference between what he calls costly grace and cheap grace. Yeah. And this is what he's talking about. You cannot earn grace. So there is no performance um, required. That's not, and the order is so critically important. Like you cannot perform your way to being loved by God. God loves you no matter what. That's true. But in light of that, if you realize and understand the magnitude and the gravity of the gift he has given you to love you relentlessly and unconditionally, then you are taking that grace, which co was costly, it cost the life of his son, Jesus, right? and you're treating it as something cheap if you decide, oh, I can do whatever I want because God's going to love me no matter what. And there's a problem there. So what Paul is saying is, you are chosen by God because he loves you. He dearly loves you. Those are Paul's words. But then he says, so in light of that, you can't earn it. He's already given it to you. He's never taking it away. That's a given. He loves you, loves you enough to send his son to die for you. But in light of that, 
how do we treat that gift with as much honor as it deserves? Well, we do it by becoming a people of compassion and kindness and humility, um, bearing with each other, forgiving each other. And then Paul says, over all these virtues, put on love to be a people of love. Yeah. You know, so we don't do those things to earn the love of God. We do them because we are loved by God. And that's the way we honor the gift of his love. Absolutely. And it just reminds me of, I mean, yeah, because I mean, I've, I've certainly had conversations with people who um, would not categorize themselves as Christians who, who yeah. talk about, well, you know, if you if this is what you believe, then you know, why do you then have to do these things to earn God's love? And I'm like, that's not what it's about. But and it's like the verse in James where faith without works is dead. And so like, Mm. if you know, and I realize he's he's referring to a couple of things. But at the end of the day, like if I'm not actually uh, bearing the fruits of the spirit, if, if, if I claim to have the Holy Spirit in me, but I don't show love, I don't show joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Nobody wants to talk about that last one in the fruits (laughs) of the spirit. Nobody wants to talk about patience and (laughs) self-control. Love, joy, peace. Those are fun. But patience and self-control are (laughs) the ones that people are kind of like, ah, we'll we'll get to that some other time. Um, But if I'm not exhibiting those things, then how am I going to be a witness for Christ? Like if Mm -hmm. I'm going to just be grumbly and miserable and mean and hard hearted and, you know, greedy, then God's done nothing in my life, (laughs) you know, but I, I think a lot about the fact that, um, there are a lot of people in my life that I have forgiven that other people who don't know Jesus have asked me like, why have you forgiven this person? Even though the relationship is not restored, but I have forgiven Mm. that person and I have told them that I forgive them. And I say, Mm. because God forgave me for all the crap I did. Uh, So who, who am I to not also give that forgiveness in return? And, um, it's so powerful. Um, and I think it can be, I mean, forgiveness especially can be such a witness, um, to others. Love when it is hard, um, can be a witness to others. But if we're just Mm. sitting around claiming that we follow Jesus, but we're angry and mean and selfish and self-centered and greedy, I mean, and unforgiving, (laughs) then we're not really doing God a whole lot of favors, if you know what I mean. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. Yeah. That's well said. Yeah. Well, I love this conversation. I love talking about this stuff. Um, but as I know we're running out of time, but as we are wrapping up, when you finished, you hit, you hit the last period on that last sentence and you sent the, the, the the study off to your publisher and it was going to go to print. What was your prayer there at the end that what God does through this study? Yeah. My prayer then and my prayer now is the same. It's that people would find an immense hope and comfort and confidence for life in knowing that someone else is in is actually in control mm. of the human story. That it's not up to you uh, to forge, you know, some form of human utopia. 
that God understands. He sees the brokenness of our world and he cares more about it than we do. And he is far more capable than we are um, to right all the wrongs. And uh, that's his promise that someday Christ will return and all wrongs will be right. And the brokenness and pain of our world will be no more. As we see in Revelation, the book of Revelation, chapter 21, the writer John has this great vision of the end of the world, and he sees the new heaven and new earth. And in that place and on that day, there's no more death. There's no more mourning. There's no more pain, no more crying, no more tears. And religious or not, Christian or not, I think uh, we would all agree that's the sort of world we want. And for followers of Jesus, our great hope is in the fact that that world is coming and we are not the ones who are going to create it. Jesus is going to bring it. And um, and I, my hope and prayer is that people would find hope in that. Mm. Amen. Jay, this has been uh, fantastic. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for writing this. I can't wait to go through this study. Um, like I said, I, this book has been coming up a lot recently. So clearly mm. there's a there's a reason. Lastly, how can people best support you and connect with you? And if they're interested in going through the study, how can they yeah. best do that? Yeah, um, I have a, a website. It's just jkimthinks.com. And if you go there, yeah, the Colossian study is there. All all of my work is there. And yeah, my email is there if anyone wants to ping me and say hello. So yeah, just reach out. Awesome. Awesome. Jay, thank you so much for being here. And uh, just thank you for sharing your godly wisdom with us. And I uh, am really grateful uh, for you. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Thanks so much for having me, Molly. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. I hope you loved it. I hope you learned something new. I hope you were encouraged. Would you take a moment and head on over to whatever podcast app you are listening to this on? Would you click that subscribe or follow button? And would you take a moment to leave a review? Leaving a review really, really, really does help us to know what you're liking and how the show is impacting you. Thank you so much for your support week in and week out. Thank you to the team at Third Wheel Media for producing the show. And for you, I hope something this week makes you laugh till you cry. We'll see you next week. Bye.